Within Westminster Abbey in London, some 3,000 people are buried or commemorated. Kings and queens, statesmen and politicians, poets and musicians, the great and the good of the land. But there is one anonymous person who is buried there. In the west end of the nave is a memorial which reads as follows. Beneath this stone rests the body of a British warrior unknown by name or rank, brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land and buried here on Armistice Day, 11th of November 1920, in the presence of His Majesty King George V, his ministers of state, the chiefs of his forces, and a vast concourse of the nation. Thus are commemorated the many multitudes who during the great war of 1914 to 1918 gave the most that a man can give, life itself for God, for king and country, for loved ones, home and empire, for the sacred cause of justice and the freedom of the world. They buried him among the kings because he had done good towards God and good towards his house. It is, of course, the tomb of the unknown warrior or soldier. In every event, in every story that makes up his story, there are not only the few whose names are immortalized, but the far greater number whose names are forgotten or even unknown. Yet people who nonetheless played a vitally important role in determining the outcome of the events in which they were involved. And today I want to focus on such a person in the story that the children read for us dramatically, which you'll probably know already if you attended Sunday school or if you've attended this church for any length of time. Of course, the main two characters are very well known. They were well known in their day, some 2,800 years ago, and in their nation. It's a part of the Middle East that is in the news every day at the present time. Naaman, the military commander, through whom the armies of Aram, modern Syria, had enjoyed many stunning military successes against neighboring armies. And Elisha, a prophet of the Lord, God of Israel, his nation, through whom the Lord had spoken his word and performed many miracles. And it is through a meeting of these two, an unlikely meeting, that a great miracle takes place. Naaman is cured of a deadly skin disease through the word of the Lord spoken by Elisha. He finally swallowed his pride and, as instructed, went and washed seven times in the River Jordan and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. So it's a story of two great men. But today I want to focus on someone in the story that it is easy to overlook. Someone who at the time in which it occurred would have been overlooked by everyone because of her age, her status and her gender, a young slave girl. Yet she played an essential part in the drama that unfolded. I spoke on this subject uh, several years ago at our Women's Morning Fellowship. I thought it might have been relevant to the ladies who were present. But as I reflected on this, I believe it's someone many of us can identify with and certainly can imitate. So let's focus on her under the, an original title of The Unknown slave girl. And it will help to turn to the Bible. It is 2 Kings chapter 5. There are Bibles in the pews. You'll find it on page 373.
Now, to be as simple as possible, I'm aware that most of the children are staying in this morning. I hope you'll be able to understand this as well as the adults as well. simply want to say four things about this nameless girl. First of all, the life she lived. We're introduced to her in verse 2. Now, bands from Aram, Syria, had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. In those days, as still we know today, the present conflict in Israel is about the kidnap of soldiers. Those kind of things have happened, continue to happen. Often they're very small incursions that don't turn out to be a full-scale war. Few people cross over to one nation, raid a village or a few towns, fight with the men, steal all the plunder they can, and then return, sometimes carrying with them people, usually women or children. And this is what has happened to this young girl in our story. Presumably Naaman and a squadron of his soldiers had crossed over into next door Israel, had raided some of the villages over the border, and in the process they'd captured some women, including this young girl. I guess Naaman probably got home that evening, and when his wife asked him, as wives do, have you had a good day, dear? He'd replied, not bad. Raided a couple of villages in Israel. Here's a nice gold bracelet and uh, a nice cloak that I thought you would like. Oh, and by the way, there's a girl I caught. She's locked up in the stable. Sure you can find something useful for her to do. Now, stop for a moment to put yourself in the sandals of this young girl. She's undergone a traumatic experience. She's lost her family and friends and home, all that was familiar. Not only that, she's experienced the loss of her freedom as well, for she's confined, consigned to a life of slavery. Although it appeared from the story that she seemed to get on well with her mistress, nonetheless she was far from home, with little chance of ever returning, living among strangers, no rights over her life, a slave girl with a very bleak future. Now life is often, is it not, very unkind. And some of us, like this slave girl, know that only too well from experience. You this morning may find yourself far from home and family. Or you may be trapped in difficult circumstances from which there seems no possible escape as far as you can tell ever. You might find yourself in an unhappy home. Maybe the only Christian there. You may be trapped in an unhappy marriage with a difficult family. Or you may suffer from other personal problems. Ill health which can limit your life financial difficulties or whatever. Many of them circumstances that are not of your own making. After all, what had this young girl ever done to deserve to live a life as a slave in a foreign country? Life must have seemed very unfair. And your life may be the same. You may be asking, whatever did I do to deserve this? You can remember when you were young like some of the folk here, And life seemed to offer all the prospects as you look forward. And now you've reached midlife or even older life. And you think, where did all the hopes and promises go? Life seems very unfair. The question is, what can you do about it? There's little this girl could do. And there may be a little that you can do. 
about your circumstances. But it's not the circumstances of life, but it's how we respond to them that really matters. From this story, it would appear that this young slave girl just simply carried on serving Naaman's wife. She lived life as best as she could in the circumstances in which she was placed. In the New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, he gives instructions to those among them who were slaves. This is what he writes. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Not everyone responds like that to the hard circumstances of life. Some people become angry, bitter, Others become sad and depressed, may even give up on life and their responsibilities. But the girl in this story carried on serving. I wonder how she was able to do this. Well, maybe she was a resilient person, we don't know much about her at all. But it would appear from the story that there is more to this than meets the eye. For notice not only the life that she lived, but notice the second thing about her, the God that she knew. In her conversation with her mistress, which is recorded here, this girl revealed that she had not forgotten her people and the God whom they worshipped. She knew that she belonged to God's special people, Israel, and that the Lord was the God of power, a God who worked through his specially chosen prophets, like Elisha. To put it in Christian terms, she was a believer. And not only that, she remained a believer, she continued to serve and worship the Lord, despite her painful experience. There are some people who turn against God when things go against them. When circumstances turn sour. They blame God for allowing things to happen to them. Or for not stopping them. Or for not taking them away when they do happen. And there are other people in these circumstances who give up altogether. Or even change their allegiance. Perhaps this young girl would have been drawn to the gods of the nation where she now lived. Perhaps she would be encouraged or even made to go and worship with her master and mistress in the temple of the god of Syria called Rimmon. After all, if their nation was winning all these battles against Israel, surely their god was more powerful than the god of Israel. But the words of this servant girl reveal that she had done none of these things. She had not abandoned her faith in the Lord, despite her personal circumstances, or been drawn away to worship the God of Aram. No, she remembered her nation and her people to whom she belonged, the God whom she worshipped. She continued to worship the Lord despite her painful experiences and despite her difficult environment. And surely it's not too much to read into the story to believe that it was in fact her faith in the Lord which sustained her through all the hard times through which she had passed already in her young life. And I simply want to say this morning, all of us at some time, Irish has alluded to some of the hard experiences we've passed through as a team over these years. It is only through those experiences that our faith in God and his promises will sustain us through times of difficulty. 
In fact, the longer I experience life, the more I talk to people, interact with people, often people in confidence, the most difficult of situations that I can't even articulate here because they're confidential. But believe me, they're pretty traumatic. I often wonder how people cope without any faith and trusting God in these hard times. In that same letter written to the Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul talks about the kind of life that they lived before they trusted in Christ. And he said, you live without hope, and without God in the world. It's a summary, isn't it, of our society and so many people today who live without hope, without God in the world. Now, the most telling witness to Christ, the most telling witness, is ordinary people who live with hope, especially through difficult circumstances and painful experiences. You see, when your lives are going well, People pay less attention to our faith. They say, if I had the kind of home and family and job and everything you had, well, I'd believe as well. But it's when things go hard and they're difficult. It's then that people sit up and take notice about the hope that we have within us. It's against the darkest of backgrounds that the light of Christ shines the most brightly. Now that gives a different perspective to our circumstances, does it not? It is in the storms of life that people see that we have an anchor for the soul, as the book of Hebrews puts it. I simply want to pause for a moment and ask, do you have that kind of anchor? Do you have that kind of hope in your life? Maybe this morning you're in the most difficult of circumstances and no one else knows or very few people know. It's very hard in a church like this. You see everybody singing a great hymn like, Oh, for a thousand tongues. And maybe your heart is miles away from there. Maybe you're in the most difficult of personal circumstances. Do you have an anchor for the soul, something that will hold you through the storms of life and will keep you secure? Do you have that Christian assurance that can say, and it's not just a bumper sticker, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you have that kind of hope this morning that is sustaining you through difficult circumstances? If so, then like this young girl, you'll want to share that hope to others who are in need. For notice not only the life she lived, the God she knew, but thirdly, the word that she spoke. We don't know how soon after becoming a slave girl that this girl spoke up about her faith. She'd have known pretty soon living in a household like that that her master suffered from this dreadful skin disease. Probably not what we call modern leprosy, but nonetheless was a disease that was very socially ostracizing and also a disease that was incurable. Perhaps as soon as she knew, she spoke up, but I suspect that it was only after a time it was a brave step to take. But maybe daily after seeing the sadness and suffering that this brought to this family, among whom she lived as a slave, she finally plucked up the courage to speak to her mistress. Verse 3. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Notice two important things about her words or witness to her mistress. First of all, the word, if only, expresses the fact that she is motivated by love. Despite the fact that she was their slave, she showed a great love for Naaman and his family. A longing that Naaman might be cured, if only. 
Very telling words, aren't they? You remember when our Lord Jesus Christ looked over Jerusalem and said, If only, if only you'd known what would bring you peace, but now it's too late. They're words of love. But her words also showed great assurance that he could be cured. She's also motivated by faith. He would cure him of his leprosy. She knew about the prophet Elisha, that the Lord God of Israel couldn't work through could and would work through him, that Naaman's condition was not incurable, that there was a solution, and that the Lord would even help a foreigner like Naaman and an enemy at that. And so in the end, she could not but speak of what she knew. Notice also, she was more concerned about her master than herself. She didn't seem to have any kind of philosophical problem in her mind with the fact that the Lord had left her there as a slave in Syria, yet he could heal her master of an incurable disease. Nor did she say to herself, well, if the Lord's not going to help me, I'm certainly not going to ask him to help Naaman. No, she longed for his healing and she said, if only my master would see the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. That was all she said. She didn't give any further explanation. She certainly couldn't heal Naaman herself. No, by a word and witness, she simply pointed him in the right direction to the person and place through which he could be healed. You could call it a minimal witness, yet effective. Now, we live in a world of needy people. Needy people like Naaman. Their problems may not seem so obvious, but they are real nonetheless. The people that we know may be like Naaman, important people, who seem to have all that life has to offer. Maybe your employer, or a leader in the community. Or they may be people at the opposite end of the social scale, and their needs may seem to be obvious, but whoever they are, they are all needy people. We read in the Gospels that when Jesus was on earth, and saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, all of us need a shepherd. We are made for a shepherd. We are made to be led. And God sent his son Jesus. He said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. All of us need cleansing. Not from skin conditions, but from a far deadly disease, the disease of sin, which stains and ruins our lives. And the Bible assures us that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. Now, have you experienced that for yourself? Have you come to the cross, been cleansed from your sin? If you have, and have genuinely experienced that, then surely your longing as you interact with people who don't know that, is that they might know it. If only. Think of... Just pause for a moment. Think of the needy people. Some of you will go home to lunch with them after this service. Some of them you'll see tomorrow morning when you go to work. Some of them are in our own families. Do you not sometimes look at them and say, if only, if only you knew the Lord. If only. You see, you don't have to give a big, long explanation. Like this young girl, you may not be able to give a clear explanation of how a person can be cleansed. But you can point them in the right direction by speaking a simple word which in its heart expresses your love and concern for them. If only. And like this young girl, we, we should be motivated by these twin themes. These twin themes of love 
and faith. Uh, Writing to Christians in Corinth, in his second letter, the Apostle Paul talks about what we could call these evangelistic imperatives. It's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that if one died for all, therefore, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The love of Christ compels us. It's a very strong word. It's the word used of a river running between a narrow gorge where the water is forced along. It says Christ's love drives us. It compels us. It impels us. And he goes on to say that we are motivated by faith. Look what he says. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't just look at people in human terms. He says, we once looked at Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, let me just again pause and ask, do you really believe that if you're a Christian? If anyone... I often say to people, think of the person you know who you think is the most unlikely person ever to become a Christian. And then read 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. That Christ can change and transform that person. Can meet them at their point of need. Now, if we have that conviction... There comes a time when you've got to say something. You've got to do something. Perhaps the challenge is to invite that person to come along to church with you. We've got special events coming up in the festival. Maybe you should say to them, would you like to come along to one of the festival events that we're organising next month? Or maybe you could give them a Bible or a book or something to read. Maybe only a small thing. A minimal witness, but who knows what the outcome might be. So it was with this young girl. Notice the life she lived, the God she knew, the words she spoke, fourthly and finally, the outcome she witnessed. Two remarkable things happened to Naaman when he visited the prophet Elisha in Israel. Two miracles. The first and most obvious was what the girl expected. Naaman was cleansed. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. I'm not sure if the girl expected the second miracle. But it's an even greater miracle. Naaman was cleansed. Naaman was converted. Verse 15, 17. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. You see, the greatest miracle of all is not sorting out your friend's finances, their marriage, their health problems, whatever. Sometimes God does resolve such things. And sometimes a financial advisor, a marriage counsellor, and a doctor can do them as well. But the greater miracle is conversion, where a person changes their allegiance, a change of direction, and a change of nature. And only God can do this. 
And he does it through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has the authority and the power to forgive sin. So Naaman is cleansed and is converted. I'd love to have been present when he arrived back home with a new skin and a new nature. I wonder what the slave girl thought and said when she saw the change in her master. Perhaps she didn't say anything. She'd already said enough when she spoke to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And the challenge I want to leave with this morning is this. Who knows what the outcome of your words, maybe very simple words, might be? And what an impact they might have if you have the courage and conviction to speak them. Almost finished. Let's go back to where we began. The tomb of the unknown soldier in Westminster Abbey. It's a practice that's been adopted, as you know, in many countries in the world now. For example, in France, in Greece, and in India, to name but three countries. I was doing some research on this this week on the internet. And in the United States, the memorial is in the Arlington National Cemetery. It's actually known there as the Tomb of the Unknowns. For it contains the remains of soldiers from World War I, World War II, and the war in Korea. What I found really interesting was this. Also in the tomb, there used to be the remains of a soldier from Vietnam. They've now been removed. You know why? Because through DNA analysis, they identified the unknown soldiers, a man called Michael Blassie. Many of us wonder, do we not, if our identity is known to anyone? Will anyone remember us after we've died? Do our lives really matter? Are they significant? No memorials to us. But this story of this slave girl tells us that there are more important things. If human beings can work out who's who through DNA analysis, and surely the God who made us knows us. We do well to reflect on the less familiar words, if you have been to Westminster Abbey, around the memorial, not on it, on the tomb, are four texts from the New Testament. At the top is written, The Lord knoweth them that are his. On the left side are the words of Jesus. Greater love hath no man than this. On the other side, a verse from 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. Unknown and yet well known, dying and behold we live. But on the basis on the foundation is the only lasting hope. In Christ shall all be made alive. That alone gives significance to our lives. Let's pray together.